Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. This week I'm joined by Amil Khan. Amil is a former Reuters journalist and documentary maker. He's an associate fellow at Chatham House and he works with governments and NGOs on strategies to tackle disinformation. We're going to have a conversation about how states like Russia can plant disinformation in our mainstream media organisations. Take a look at lessons from Syria and the Middle East about how organisations like ISIS are able to spread disinformation and ask whether Boris Johnson's latest bus shenanigans were cock-up or conspiracy. Amil, thank you very much for joining me here in the studio. Thank you for having me. You're a former journalist. If there's one thing I know about journalists, it's they tend to have a kind of... They often hide it very well, but they have a deep inner cynic. Uh, are you somebody who cultivates an inner cynic? Gosh, you put the... You press the button straight away. Um... Yes, I have an inner cynic, but I also have a sense of righteousness, if I say, and I think Mm. journalists often have that, but I have a sense of wanting to do the right thing. And I think what happens is if when you're a professional journalist, if you're a professional journalist for too long, the cynicism ends up sort of shutting you down and nothing matters. It's all rubbish and it's all going to fail and we're all, you know, going to end up frying to a crisp anyway, so who who cares? And uh, I think I stepped out of journalism when the fire in me to actually fix things was still there. And you made several documentaries. Was ma- did, did making those documentaries, did that kind of stoke the fire to fix things or or did it make you kind of feel like it was harder to do? Documentaries made me realise that you can have something like a documentary which is all about fixing things, but they can be packaged in a way that they're just a process and... In fact, there's a bit of artifice in it and that you go, all right, we're going to start and we're going to find this thing out and it's going to be amazing. We're gonna, we don't know where we're going to go. You know where you're going to go because it's in your treatment. You know, So that made me think journalism in general, but documentaries were a big part of my journey sort of into thinking about what do you actually do that makes a difference? What can you do that makes a difference? And have you answered that question? No, I think I'm closer to it. I think I've probably, if I was going to let the inner cynic out a little bit, I would say that I've found lots of things that don't, but I know why. So it's a process of elimination. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're going to talk a lot today about disinformation, um, and I w- wondered if you could kind of give me, um, first off, your, your working definition of what disinformation is. So I have a, my, my definition is a slight amendment on, on a very good one that the New York Times used uh, in a set of videos that they did recently. So my definition would be something along the lines of uh, the purposeful creation of false information seeded into the information environment to have a real-world impact, whether it's political, financial, or whatever. 
And your background isn't just in the UK, you've got global experience. So we often on this podcast have talked about disinformation often through a kind of Brexity lens for one for shorthand. Um, we've looked at Ireland, we had a conversation recently about Kenya. Um, but there are other parts of the world where the use of disinformation is rife. Yeah, absolutely. I Actually, I think we get, uh, when we talk about this kind of stuff in the UK and in the US, in the English-speaking world, we are very so Western-centric about it. And uh, you'll see all this, uh, basically the idea that in 2016 disinformation started. It has been a, a feature of politics in a lot of other bits of the world for quite a long time. There was some really good reporting around elections in South America. The guy who's is in jail for basically sort of being uh, an election consultant on steroids. Basically, he was doing loads of illegal stuff around buying influence and um, seeding fake news and, and disinformation around. But also places like Pakistan and India, which sort of Facebook has recently caught up with. I mean, these places, Pakistan, where I've worked, the military has a massive infrastructure for... It's been from newspapers, you know, back in the you know a few decades ago to like so the nineties and and two thousands. They put a lot of money into in manipulating what was on TV, getting their kind of talking heads on TV, all that kind of stuff. And now they're they're in the world of Facebook as well, um, often quite uh, crudely. Like if you see it, you know what it is. Um, but also places now, you know, new new players coming on the scene in, for example, the Gulf, where there's a lot of money. The politics of the situation have become more unstable with people looking, jostling to see, you know, where they're going to be and protect their interests. But they've got a lot of money to be able to go and look elsewhere and say, OK, we want some of that and we want some of that um, and start adapting and using those techniques for themselves. And which countries are kind of looking at looking at a broader global sphere of influence that perhaps wouldn't have been previously? The UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular. I mean, you've got to... It's not very surprising when you look at it in a in a context, which is you've got these countries that sort of lived under a British and an American uh, security dome. And uh, I mean, Britain back in the sort of uh, late colonial in the 70s and 60s was setting their boundaries between each other. So they kind of lived in this world where you know, the big questions were taken care of by Britain and America. And you knew where you stood. We were with them. The Soviets were on the other side. And now it's it seems like America's pulling out. It looks like America's less reliable. It looks like a reality TV star can become the president of America, right? What do we do? So now you're you're kind of responsible for yourself. That competition with your neighbors, that global competition, that idea of protecting your, let's say, way of life and an authoritarian, unquestioned, monarchical system. Um, if you want to protect that, you've got to be proactive about it. And that's what they're doing. And you've wrote, you wrote a piece recently, I think, for the Foreign Policy Centre, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So taking a look at two different types of disinformation that have been used to influence two different US presidents that sort of also reflect the changing nature of disinformation tactics. So before I ask you to maybe, maybe use those examples mm-hmm. to, to set out some of the basics of how people go about seeding disinformation. Well, what both of those... Having, so one's in 2013, one's in 2017. What they both have in common is that the, the act of doing it, which in this case was the regime, the, the Syrian regime helped by its uh, Russian patron, was the intention to manipulate the information process. So the kind of how does information start, uh, where does it start, 
how does it end up with journalists? How does it end up from journalists to the mass audience? And figuring that process out, and then once you've figured it out, figuring out how to manipulate it for your own needs. And in 2013, the information, if you think back to that, you know, social media was was less pervasive. The, the ability of social media to move information around that would end up in mainstream media was just less than it is now. And just, sorry to interrupt, you were working at the time with Syrian rights organisations, is that right? I was working with the Syrian political opposition. So I was their UK advisor on political, sort of political advisor and communications advisor. And um, in, so in 2013, you know, it's a kind of iconic point in time for us in the UK because so when we had the vote about uh, uh, going to war in Syria, which the government, uh, David Cameron's government, lost, and it kind of was a, a moment in terms of how the UK looks at foreign policy and, foreign, and interventions particularly. So the other side of that, the other side of the coin where I was sitting, was how the Russians manipulated that system um, so that they could get the outcome that they wanted. So essentially, their allies used chemical weapons. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people who get in touch and say, oh, it was a conspiracy and it was the CIA and it was a red flag. It was. It was their allies, a bit of the Syrian regime, used chemical weapons. And the Russians kind of went into panic mode because this was the thing that they thought Obama talked about his red line. They were like, okay, what are we going to do? So what they did do was very quickly put in place a process to seed a counter idea. So the rebels did it to themselves and get it... Um, through small, much smaller news organisations, kind of dubious organisations that they probably had links to, and then push it between the from one level of media organisation to another until it became popularly accepted as either the truth or at least we should give it a hearing. So even the likes of the BBC, definitely Fox News and things like that, would say, oh, we should consider that, you know, maybe the rebels did it to themselves. And the end process as far as um, the people doing it was concerned was if I was them I would be sitting there and going that they were actual internet sort of memes and stuff of of American servicemen and British servicemen I think as well um, covering their faces in uniform with a placard saying I didn't sign up to be the Air Force for Al-Qaeda or something or I didn't uh, sign up to fight for Al-Qaeda that's a massive win and those kind of ideas were floating around in the public's mind very prominently not sort of, you know, back there somewhere. It was probably the first thing people thought of when they were faced with this big national conversation. And, of course, the government, there was no way it was going to win. You know, it was an unpopular decision. It's kind of politically marginal. There's no big con- there's no big constituency for it. So if you can tip the scales just even a little bit, then you're doing really well. And, of course, they won, and the government lost the votes. And still, to this day, and I have this all the time, it's a great source of frustration to me, if I talk to anybody about Syria and say I used to work on Syria and chemical weapons come up it's pretty much accepted that the chem- that chemical weapons were done by the by the rebels on themselves on their own families and how was the difference what was the difference in 2017 <coughs> so 2017 um, we lived in a in a different much as we do now we, we live in a different information environment so the sinews of it the social media sort of connections basically are much more skewed towards online platforms, whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram, rather than traditional platforms. So in 2013, the disinformation operation was actually quite risky. They had to physically find a journalist and they had to get the right guy who had connections with AP 
and then get that guy to write an article. He, from the reports I read on, in, in reputable sources, he'd he'd actually gone onto the ground in Syria and people had spoken to him and said, um, this is what we've seen. And those people were probably plants. And that's quite a lot of you know intricate organization to have to do. And then this guy worked with a journalist who was a freelancer, sometimes at AP. So um, they had to stand up and say, so that gave them the ability, that gave the Russians, actually Lavrov, the ability to say, hey, APs reported that maybe the rebels did it to themselves, which actually totally was a complete misrepresentation. But that's a difficult process to do, to manage every step of the way. There's lots of things that can go wrong. In 2017, it was more, it was much more mechanized process, you know, if, if, if that's the right word. So the, again, the Syrian regime with their um, Russian patrons put out a story on a regime English language news site. So totally they own it. It's not difficult to do. You just have to write it, put it out there and say the rebels have done this to themselves yet again. Um, they came out with a bit more of a complex story this time, taking videos and, and pictures and misrepresenting them, pointing to the timestamps and saying, oh, look, this proves that it couldn't have been done at this time which we now know is that's just a misrepresentation because of the way the timestamps work on YouTube videos, you know, depending on your geography and where you are. But then it went from there to they pushed it up to, so, so if you think of like like a Wi-Fi signal, sort of, you know, the, the kind of bands, you know, ever-increasing bands, um, the first that you've got the source and then the first level they've pushed it up to are small conspiracy sites like um, Global Research or um, a couple of others like that. And There's a 21, one with 21st century. Yes, start, 21st century, that kind of level. So 21st century, globalresearch.ca and a couple of others. The sort of stuff you often see, I think, as clickbait outs yeah. on slightly less well-funded websites. It's probably yeah. fair. Like I go on a, so it's completely changed, well, not changed the subject, but I go on a Knox County message board and at the bottom, the, the outbrain clicks are often to those sorts of places, I find. Yeah, yeah. I'd actually like to find out a bit more about how, what the advertising mechanism is that that actually makes that happen um that would be interesting to know so they pushed it out to outlets like that and then they pushed it up a bit to the likes of infowars so from info that's when it gets really interesting so infowars alex jones pizzagate conspiracy all that kind of stuff sandy hook but a guy with a massive audience um i think he had on his personal twitter or something like half a million followers and then infowars itself actually had a little less and they're tweeting this story, you know, multiple times. Sometimes they say, oh, they sometimes they recognize the source and say it was this, it was a reputable source coming out of Syria. Sometimes they don't bother and just repeat mm. what are supposed, you know, the main points of the story and make it look like it's their original reporting or whatever. So Infowars is sort of pushing this out online rather than on his actual broadcasts. And um, then a, a bot network kicks in. And so these are Clearly, you know, not trolls, really bots. Like it's something actually that has moved on. We see less of now. But these are um, uh, accounts set up to look like a hot girl, uh, right wing, left wing, just anything to sort of get people in. And they and they are tweeting this out on a on on an industrial scale, like a hundred times a day, two hundred times a day, three hundred times a day. Like networks pinging this around all over the place. Um, and the final sort of link in it is. Uh, one of uh, a U.S. sort of Katie Hopkins type character, sort of a right wing sort of media personality, uh, Mike Kernovich. He picks it up off of, um, he uses the same hashtag off of, but he doesn't retweet it. He uses the hashtag that's being um, popularized by the bots. And then it's on Fox News. Then he's talking about it on Fox News. And by the time he's talking about it on Fox News, it's become 
a legitimate talking point and there are demonstrators outside the White House, Trump's own base. It's the, it's the first time, I think, and, and the most serious instance of his base kind of turning back and going, what the hell are you doing? Because he'd, um, he'd, uh, he'd fired some um, sort of a small-scale attack using cruise missiles, and his base straight away came out and said, this is unacceptable, you know, we don't want to go to war for al-Qaeda, we don't, you know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, Trump has, has said in interviews it did, that that did affect his thinking. He was he was not going to. It wasn't worth the political capital. So, the 2017 model is a lot less risky because you manage more of it, and it's more about manipulating, literally sitting behind a computer, rather than some sort of sneaky beaky operation Real where you're yeah where you're like getting on the ground yeah. and having to really deal with people. And um. You know, funnily, just I think most people who follow this conversation would accept, like, accept that the use of bots is fairly obvious these days. And I remember, just to share a reflection, and, and, and I guess some people know, some people don't, that I used to work for the Africa Governance Initiative, which was a charity set up by Tony Blair when he left office. And as part of that role, I had TweetDeck open, and I always had Tony Blair as a column, which is an interesting experience. But there was one day to, during... So Tony Blair's... Just Tony Blair, his, just a search yeah. for his name, okay. always on my oh, tweet right. deck, which yeah. is kind of, you know, you can imagine the number of four-letter words featuring in that feed. <laughs> but the uh, there was this one day during the Trump campaign where I watched it and suddenly it just started spinning. And it was like when you used to play Fruit Machine, or I used to play Fruit Machine, and it was just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. I was like, what earth is going on here? And all these MAGA, Make America Great Again, Trump accounts, had tweeted something, this, exactly the same tweet, with the words Tony Blair in. And my tweet deck column was just going, wow. And it was the, one of the craziest insights into a phenomenon I think I've ever had, which I didn't talk about much at the time, but now it's very clear to me what I was watching, which was that someone somewhere had pushed a button on the bot machine. Yeah. Um, which was just an incredible thing to watch unfold in front of your eyes. I wonder, um, for you, if you could share whether there are... Are, do different states use different tactics, or is there kind of one model that's working really well? The different states use different tactics because they are in different scenarios, political, economic, whatever. But at the core of all of them is the effort to figure out what an information process looks like and to game it. So this is all, like, Russia's been very, very good at that and kind of impressive in a evil Bond villain sort of way that... Um, it doesn't have a free media. So it has a highly controlled media. And when they were in conflict with Georgia, the reports of how they kind of had to deal with the media or how they were trying to deal with the media showed like zero understanding of how blogs worked, of uh, what a state-controlled uh, media outlet was versus a free media outlet. And they went from that to Ukraine uh, with this really intricate, nuanced understanding of as I was saying about Syria in 2013, like a freelancer does this, a AP might have freelancers, so maybe we can use the AP name, we have a way into it. So all of them basically work on a process of understanding where information starts and where it ends up. And to me, that's fascinating in a nerdy way because that was my bread and butter as a journalist. I remember sitting there in the Reuters office with other sort of junior correspondents going, bloody hell, if I wanted to get on the news, all I'd have to do is set up a fake think tank or a think tank with two people, issue a report with a superlative, ring up Reuters and go, listen, we've got this great you know, report and it shows that 70% of people are predisposed to violent behaviour. You know, People do manipulate science to kind of say things like that. 
And because it's a superlative, it's worth reporting. You know, new is news, right? So it's this kind of basic thing that you learn. And that's sort of stuck in my head. So I thought, how do people do that? You know, and as I went through, I left Reuters, I went to work for the BBC, and then I started working for, you know, for government and NGOs and stuff. And you see some people have figured that out. You know, how do I get in this process? And other people are really rubbish at it. It's not a topic I know a lot about, but there's a book I'm meaning to read called Democracy in Chains, which I think talks about the influence of uh, corporate money on American politics, which I think some people would argue we're seeing by proxy here in the UK, particularly with a number of think tanks which I'll remain nameless. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the basic model is kind of the same in terms of understand the chain, the route into the information ecosystem and how best can you manipulate that route into the information ecosystem. I um, I, I wonder if it, is it just state actors that understand how to do this presumably not because we've already touched on the fact that it can be used for political influence mm. but what does this mean for journalism because both of these models require manipulating the model of journalism but journalists aren't the end goal yeah so and, and i've noticed in your writing you've used a phrase about communications versus journalism mm. as different kind of approaches to how you get information out there so is this about the manipulation of journalism is it about journalists as a middleman in a classic communication sense what's what's going on in terms of when russia does something like this or when even isis does something like this what what's their end game so the end game always for an insurgent is um for a political insurgent is to get 
to the audience directly without the filter of journalists. And that has been going on for a long time. So we're in a system now, we're in a situation rather, where some insurgents, ISIS you mentioned, but even the Russians and others, have actually been in the wilderness since the 70s and 80s, kind of trying to get on these basically Western-owned platforms, which are seen popularly across the world, or have until very recently, seen as the gatekeepers to global attention, whether it's the BBC, whether it's CNN, those two, you know, if you came up to around 2005, 2006, were it, you know, wherever you wanted to go. And I've been to African villages where people will go, ah, BBC. So they've been trying to figure out ways around that for a really long time. And whether it's um, the, the, the New York Times video series talks about all these, like, um, I mean, basically the system's the same, you know, it's the one we've just been talking about, seeding a story about how AIDS was made by uh, the CIA in a lab to kill black people and sticking that in a, in a newspaper in India, which is kind of a friendly newspaper run by the local Communist Party, and then seeding it through all these ways. They've, they've been doing that for a long time. ISIS with, uh, or AQ before them, by trying to you know, get to uh, Al Jazeera, giving them videotapes. You know? I mean, they didn't really want to deal with Al Jazeera, but they saw Al Jazeera as, uh, as a very useful alternative to the BBC. They can get on top of the BBC... BBC doesn't care about Middle East stuff really all that much, but hey, Al Jazeera does, so let's start giving them stuff, cultivating journalists, so all those you know, nine journalists from the 90s who, who met them, Robert Fisk and you know all these... Um, actually, Robert Fisk is the only one we talk about in the West, but there's loads of Arab and Pakistani journalists who met uh, Osama bin Laden. And then in Iraq, during um, the, the conflict itself, during the American presence in Baghdad, you had uh, CDs floating around, so they were trying to get the information to people... Baghdad Sniper was one I remember. There's this highly produced kind of series of kind of this Robin Hood type figure who was taking out American soldiers. And that was a, that was a big deal. Again, straight to the audience. Like, okay, we're not going to deal with the BBC. We're not going to, we don't have to deal with it. Great, fine, fantastic. We'll just make, we'll cut some CDs and we'll put the MP3s on there and we'll just hand them out to people at markets. So essentially, journalists are a necessary evil, I think, for a lot of people. But, you know, if you were a politician in the UK, you'd probably see journalists as a necessary evil as well. So the the conundrum for journalists is that you are a necessary evil right now and people will look to go through you to get to the audience. But the trend line is basically pointing in the direction where journalists become irrelevant because everyone goes direct to the audience. And that's happening, of course, we know more and more and more. And it's interesting listening to you talk and thinking about, well, OK, how does this play out? And one of the things we've seen at the time of recording, and it will be a couple of weeks until this comes out, but we're, we're just post the uh, the weekend of Boris's domestic row, and the speed with which that conversation on Twitter became a doubling down on previous political positions. There was there was absolutely no room for discussion, grey area, differences of opinion, mm. and it split entirely along pre-existing positions, and. I, I thought to myself, because I, I saw the story and I thought, oh, okay, where's this going to go next? And Boris was being very quiet. And I was like, when's the line going to come? And you see it with Corbyn as well. You know, something happens with the Labour Party and everyone goes, that's outrageous. And there's a there's a there's there's almost a kind of, there's the moment's silence after the explosion or you're in the eye of the storm and no one knows yet what the line is to yeah. put out. Same with Trump. And then within like 12 hours the people come out and they give their line and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what the 
content is, whether there's a grey area, whether it makes sense. All that matters is there is an argument to be given. And I, I, I wonder about what is the link here between, is there a link here between the way that states look at how to manipulate information, cha- chains of information in society, and the way that we're allowing ourselves, not just journalists, ourselves to be manipulated in our political conversations with a complete absence of facts sometimes based purely on emotion and and identity. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant rather than a question. No. You can respond no. to it, by all means do. Carry on, I love that. Um, I think there's two things at play. One is exactly what you said, the tribalism. Everyone's decided where they sit in that divide. You know, we've all done it. We've all decided, you know, I'm, I'm here because I don't like this guy or I don't like this policy. And, and then we've constructed around that policy all sorts of other markers as to who we are and what other kind of people we get on with. So we're looking to see, with the Boris Johnson one, you could see it was like, whatever happens, I'm going to support Boris Johnson. I'm not quite sure what the line is. As soon as the line comes out, I'm pretty sure I'm going to jump on. I'm not going to sit there and think about it and say, oh, that's ridiculous. Come on, you know, there's not a band of lefties waiting outside every Tory politician's house like ready for that gotcha moment that's ridiculous it doesn't matter you're just going to go straight in boots first like yeah you know that's it that's our guy he's spoken let's go but I think there's something different between that that's um, a result of the kind of polarised political debate that we're in now where policies ideas don't matter it's it's what kind of person are you that matters and then everything else sort of flows down from that. But there's something different between that and the manipulation of a worldview for a particular political, financial, whatever, output. And I think at the moment, I would say, I'm sure people, other people would disagree, but from everything I've seen, whether it's in Asia, the, the, the sort of operations that um, the Pakistanis run or, or the um, BJP in India when they're trying to win an election or whether it's South American elections, Chinese, you know, stuff, the Gulf. At the end of the day, the Russians have been the most effective at understanding a worldview and manipulating it enough to get something that you want out of it, not just firing up the base to, for the sake of firing up the base just because it makes everyone feel good and we sit around and, you know, and link arms. It's the Russians are very good at figuring out, like, if we want a specific output from this, which of these groups do we fire up? Um, what are our endpoints? What are their fear motivations? What are their aspirations? What are their um, preconceptions and prejudices? Uh, how do we press those buttons? What kind of content do we make? And then solving that creative problem with then a technical solution as well, which is really what's so impressive about it because it's very rare to get technical and creative solutions together because we as pe- people don't work like that and often that then reflects in companies and you know, in institutions. It's difficult to meld the two. Um, the Russians have solved that problem and have been very, very laser-like focused on what they want out of it. And we are still in a process here in the UK where it's just tri- it's just tribal. It's just, you know, there's no outlet. I mean, our, our Brexit um, numbers haven't changed dramatically. We haven't figured out how to appeal to another side to get those voters on our side. Neither side has done that at all. So um, I think, yeah, there's two different things going on there. And 
generally speaking, whether it's in the UK or elsewhere, the sort of progressive side has been really slow. And I, I, I do some volunteering for the Labour Party and seeing organisations and structures that um, want to do good in the world basically just assume that because they want to do good that they don't really have to think too much about how they communicate and that whatever they're saying is self-evident. So we'll say, say this stuff, we'll put it out in a press release that nobody listens to and reads, stick it on a website nobody visits. But hey, we're saying the right thing. That's got to count for something, right? And when I was reading some of your writing, I read a piece that you wrote for BuzzFeed, which I think made an important point that like, I'd like to give you the chance to, to follow up on now around, and actually we had a coffee before we arranged this interview and we sort of touched on it. The sort of sense through which we can often perceive our culture and our issues as superior to others. And I don't know whether it's a particularly Western phenomenon or not, but there are changes in norms taking place in Western society that I think make it harder for us to make those assumptions about the, you know, rightly or wrongly, make assumptions about the supremacy of Western culture. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I've... So the context is, is that I worked for pretty much 10 years abroad in the Middle East, and then since then... So I graduated, worked abroad, worked for Reuters, was a Middle East correspondent, came back to the UK, they are sort of going abroad again. Um, so I spent a long time in, in the Middle East, Turkey, Pakistan, uh, Sudan, various other places. And I think I, I personally, I feel embarrassed saying this, I was part of a generation of people who um, very lazily thought we were coming from a superior way of doing things. And we were going to try and teach people how to do that, whether we were journalists or aid workers or whatever whatever job we were doing even business consultants you know we know something we've got something and you know because we've got it we want to teach you too how to do it and it took a while for me to realize that actually if you put people in the same situation and I mean by that money wise or, or security wise where they're scared where things are unstable that people pretty much react in the same way so I've seen polarised debate and identity-based politics, yeah, in a big way in the Middle East. I mean, it's if you live in a country like Egypt, you know, now we because of what happened in 2011, we kind of talk about Egypt um, a little bit. But, you know, for the Mubarak era, um, these are countries that got away with, for example, I mean, it's we're not even there yet. You know, we kind of look at these places as places of the past, you know, Egypt, you know, whether we love it or hate it. Egypt is the past, you know. It's either, God, look how great they... they they, they do things that we've forgotten, or it's like, oh my God, they're so backward. But either way, it's the past. But what if it's actually a, a reflection of our future? So Egypt, for example, its political public politics by its leadership has been devoid of any link to reality for a long time. So on the one hand, it can go, Mubarak would go to Western countries and say, well, I'm a secularist and I'm keeping the Islamists at bay and they're all religious nutters and God, that's terrible, and I'm totally for freedom of religion and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, arrest gay men and torture them and unapologetically say it's because they're gay for, I think the actual charge was something like um, uh, for contravening the divine religion. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But the government did that because it wanted to shore up its base. It, it's still politics, you know. So I think that... We do have this idea where it's sort of going, oh, my God, we've got disinformation, you know. Oh, my God, we've got um, 
the rise of the right or whatever. But essentially what we have is economic polarization. And that is feeding into exactly the same things that you see in places like Egypt and Pakistan, where you've got immense wealth and immense poverty. And the immense wealth has to figure out ways to, to protect its wealth, often seeks to manipulate you know, in Pakistan, they like to call it the masses. And there's an Arabic phrase that, that, that equates to the same thing. And there's this kind of sense of these people are, you know, they're a bit excitable, you know. We have to kind of manage them. And at the same time, you're living in a, you know, you can't get out of your house if you're a rich Pakistani without um, gun-toting, you know, AK-47, toting guards and a house with, like, you know, CCTV and, 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 a, and a gate and a security gate. It's a horrific way to live, but that's how life looks when you've got that sort of disparity of of wealth and people start reacting in the same way. So I get really nervous when I start seeing reflections of that. Maybe I'm overly paranoid about it, but I start seeing, you know, people say that I start seeing the idea, something I'd never thought I'd hear in the UK, which I used to hear from officials. I won't say which countries, but, but some of the countries where I said I'd uh, lived in when they would say things like, could we really have one man, one vote? Because, you know, not everyone is educated. I mean, what's the point of giving a full vote to somebody who can't read, where some guy will just turn up and say, oh, yeah, I, I acted on a you know, TV you know, show, a really popular TV show, and therefore vote for me. I was like, that happens, you know. I mean, people do get votes because they were... Uh, on GMTV or whatever, you know, that that does happen. But the idea that you can just say, discount a whole bunch of people's votes. And I'm, I have heard that conversation now in the UK where um, people, and it's on the left, would say, you know, unwashed masses in the north who want Brexit, it's not really good for them. You know, how do we stop them voting for that kind of stuff? You know, we're, we are not that far behind in those kind of discussions. It's an interesting point, actually following on from the most recent episode of Government vs. Robots titled Trigger Warning, which is where um, Alex Evans joined us and was talking about how do we get from a kind of them and us place to a larger us place. And, you know, them and us is such a powerful device for mm. firing up the base, whereas a larger us is kind of necessary for digging us out of this hole. But even with a larger us, you kind of, I, I haven't yet got to a point in my own thinking about if you accept that you need to build the case for a larger us, there is always some form of othering almost that is required to define an us in the first place. Um, so I haven't quite managed to get to grips with where I think the answer is to that. Just quickly, um, as we head towards the end of the interview, presumably we're doing disinformation to other states. Um, all countries do seek to do influence uh, on each other, but what I do know from uh, work is that the, as opposed to the Russians, the UK can't lie in its um, information that it puts out. It can be, very, presumably, I'm going to say that the UK can be very strategic about which information it chooses to highlight and which information it chooses to suppress. Yes, but that's a reflection of what you would see, you know, with the number 10, you know, putting out, sure. you know, whatever it said, you know, we did really well on this, don't look at that, you know, that kind of stuff. Um but the UK is way more legalistic. So you could, you know, D-Day, we're going to land on this beach and not that beach. You know, you can, you know, there, there's legal parameters around that. But just coming up with wacky bullshit yeah. is not something, you know, that as far as I know from my work, that you, the yeah, UK would, would or could do. Um, I always try and end on a positive note. We've just had a particularly depressing few minutes, really, thinking about the bigger picture. Um, what, in your experience, can individuals 
and organisations do to either protect themselves from the influences of disinformation, spot it, or counter it? That's a really good question. Everything I see so far, all the good work around disinformation, I love reading it, but I always end up slightly depressed because they always end up with the idea that you can expose people to the idea that it's wrong. And there are people automatically go, all right, okay, fine, it's wrong. Uh, Or you can educate people about how media works. Yeah, sure, you can. But this stuff works on a visceral, emotional level. And it works uh, both ways round. I've got lots of friends who, um, uh, from the other side of uh, of the aisle, where people might remember this, there was a picture of Donald Trump, internet meme, and it said, um, it had it like sort of quote Donald Trump, 1993. If I was ever going to run for president, I'd run for the Republicans because those idiots will swallow anything. I was totally made up as well. Because, but we sh- I, lots of people I know shared it because it speaks to you. So exposed doesn't work. And there's academic work on that. And people look at it and, and still double down on it, you know. So I would say, look, we can actually do something about it. And the first, the place where you need to start is knowing who the adversary is, knowing what the adversary is aiming for. Don't look at what they're saying. That's just chaff. Right? Yes, it's painful and it'll, it, it comes at you and it's designed to um, produce an emotional response. And you sort of panic that other people are believing this bad stuff about you. But look at what they're aiming at. And then also look at what they're afraid of. So Nigel Farage, great example politicians seem to keep wanting to prove that Nigel Farage's policies are wrong, he's done this wrong, he's done that wrong. The Led by Donkeys guys, great stuff, right? Really, really great stuff. I mean, some of the most effective stuff that I've seen. But look at what Farage actually says, uh, and he, he doesn't try and hide it. Uh, has distanced himself from Tony Robinson. He's criticised UKIP for allying themselves with Tommy Robinson. And the reasoning is that he said, look, Middle England doesn't like thuggery, Right. And this is a problem with the sort of extreme right in the UK, if you look at it from their point of view, that they always kind of fail, not because uh, the rest of us sort of, you know, come to our senses and get rid of them and kick them out. It's because they end up fighting with each other. Even Tommy Robinson said, like, we need to stop getting drunk at, at protests. Or football matches most recently, from what I can see. And he does it anyway, though. But, you know, he knows it's a problem and he knows that that stops them appealing to the to, to the people they really want to get to, the mass appeal, which is like Middle England, as, as Farage says. And so you don't see Farage with a pint anymore, sort of grinning, having a fag. You know, he's done with that. He's built that base. Uh, what you see Farage doing is shaking hands with grannies. You know, he's going for the Blue Rinse Brigade. He's going for the Tories' core, essentially. So what I would do is look at the same techniques Figure out what the audience is. Figure out what the audience's profile is. Figure out how you can make content or active. It doesn't have to be a video. It's like it could be your political talking points. It could be your activity. And get them in front of that audience. And in Farage's case, and especially the best thing you can do, I think, with disinformation from, the, from, from my experience, is turn up the pain on the other guys. So just exposing them is not going to do anything. But if by doing it, they look more stupid or damage their own credibility great examples of Salisbury um, poisoning like they, the, Russia ended up looking really stupid because Russians were laughing at these two guys there was like stuff on the internet about how they look like a gay couple you know going on a holiday and what the hell happened to our security services I mean this is a joke so you know that just that just then went away that that operation resulted in the Russians actually probably getting more damage than 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 benefit so my approach would be if you are looking at a disinformation attack, keep calm. 
there's definitely stuff you can do on data intelligence side that looking at you know the the the, the way the the waves of these things come in and you won't actually be able to see it unless you have the the software that allows you to see kind of how uh, hashtags are being manipulated but even if you don't have that you can still sort of with a little bit of awareness keep calm look at what the actual aim is and then figure out the profile of your opponent people don't do that like what 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 is it about them that you can get at that will turn up the pain on them so that they stop doing it Thanks, Samuel. Just quickly, a last question has arisen in my mind while you've been talking. I saw somebody suggesting last night that, uh, we'll talk about Boris again. Boris uh, answered a question about how he relaxes with a load of blather about buses. Uh, And now when you Google Boris Johnson bus, up comes all the blather about buses. Whereas if you'd Googled Boris Johnson bus a week ago, you'd have got, let's get the 350 million for the NHS. Would you subscribe to... Is that conspiracy to clean out Boris's bus record, or uh, is it just cock up and coincidence that somehow he's now managed to make all the Google returns on Boris Johnson's bus come up with something else? It could actually be both because with Boris Johnson, you know, Boris Johnson is cock up and blather. I mean, I don't know if I told you this before, but I might have that I did a documentary ten years ago on Boris. Oh right, okay. So I worked on uh, uh, dispatches, the trouble with Boris. I had to follow Boris around for like two months. I literally got on a bike and cycled from Islington to City Hall every day, twice a day, there and back, and sat in City Hall and watched all, you know, and went through all of his his work, essentially. And uh, so, you know, I get triggered when everybody's talking about Boris because it's like flashbacks to the just bullshittery of, you know, seeing him actually in action close up. And um, that that is a big part of Boris. But at the same time, the Tory party, as opposed to, for example, the Labour Party or the Greens or the Lib Dems, has this immense capital of help that it can draw on. So all these like, you know, MNC Saatchi, uh, Linton Crosby's guys, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's a deep well of support that they can call up. And I've seen some of these companies and these people close up. They're not, you know, super ninjas, uh, you know, who are really, you just have to look at Dominic Rabb's video and Sajid Jabba's video. I mean, they were complete rubbish. But there is Sajid one... Jabba's video was pretty good, I thought, actually. I would contest that. But I'm, I'm not going to contest like it right it. now. Yeah, we can, we can talk about that another time. But I think that there's some basic stuff that people can do, which most normal people don't think of, such as, you know, editing a Wikipedia, you know, entry, gaming uh, search engine optimization. And I know with the Tory party that because of the amount of money the you know, Labour Party has volunteers everyone knows that the Tory party has money you know more money than, than, than the other parties there was a great article in the Financial Times about how most of their money is still and down more, more dead people give them money than live people still um, but either way they get, they've got loads of money so so they can, can get help from all the, and there are loads of these companies and there's kind of this you know some of the you would be so surprised how many of them have been counsellors or failed counsellors and and then there's you know once they are once they're in that sort of mix of power and money there's like contracts you can get and all this and, and, the, and the Conservative Party can always kind of you know or bits of it depending on you know which element and you know which which figure can sort of really reach in every now and then and go right I'll have could you help me with this or could you help me with that could you help me with my video I wouldn't be surprised if they'd had some help with that and Boris uh, is close to Linton Crosby the point where there was a report uh, in the papers that, Lin- that Linton Crosby's company has lent him 23,000 quid first time I've ever heard of a service provider paying money to the person it's supposed to be 
helping, which seems is totally backwards. But, you know, that's the weirdness of those relationships. But whatever the weird relationship is, there is capacity, there's help, there's expertise that they can draw on. And I bet you that's happened. I apologise to regular listeners for failing to end on a positive note. But Amal, um, thanks very much. I've, for, I've thwarted you. Thanks very much for joining me on what uh, is a glorious summer's day outside. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. That's all from Government vs. the Robots this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do tell your friends about it, share it online, and follow us on Twitter at GOVT underscore VS underscore robots. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this episode, and we'll be back next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.